it's uh, study number 18, actually, 18 studies in the life of Paul. Title this message, Beheaded Home. In 2009, the Pope announced that the remains of the Apostle Paul had been discovered. Bone fragments were recovered after a tiny probe was inserted into the tomb, which lies in a crypt beneath the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome a church long held to have been built on the site where Paul was buried. The tomb itself was discovered by Vatican archaeologists in 2006. The fact that it was positioned exactly underneath the epigraph, Paul the Apostle and Martyr at the base of the altar, convinced them it was Paul's tomb. After the fragments were carbon dated to the correct time period, the Pope announced this seems to confirm the unanimous and uncontested tradition that the bone fragments are the mortal remains of the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, but not definitive. The last few years of Paul's life and even his death are actually somewhat of a controversy, if not a mystery. In the spring of 63 AD, Paul, under house arrest in Rome, was acquitted of the charges against him and set free. Probably none of the Jews from Jerusalem who had precipitated his arrest many years earlier appeared to give their testimony. You remember years earlier, he was under house arrest for two years in Rome, I think another three years uh, after he was first arrested in Jerusalem. So uh, this was five years later when his case finally came up uh, before the Roman magistrates. Uh, Chances are no one came to testify against him and so he would have been acquitted. After his acquittal, He traveled from Rome to the island of Crete. We know that from Titus 1.5. And he began what will turn out to be his final missionary journey. He left Titus in Crete and went to a city called Nicopolis in Macedonia. And from Nicopolis, he wrote the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. We lose track of him uh, biblically until he is rearrested in Rome about 67 A.D., There's a lot of speculation, and that's all it is really on his final travel itinerary. There are some historical references that we're going to get into that uh, help us to piece together what we think might have happened. This, as we talked about last time we were together uh, talking about Paul, this would have been the most opportune time for him to travel to such places as Spain and Gaul, which later became known as France. By the way, I'm all for calling it Gaul. That just has a, a nice sound to it, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, Gaul fries, uh, those kinds of things. <laughs> I dare you. But uh, they later became known as uh, France and on to Ludgate Hill, which is the present site of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England. There's evidence Paul went to Spain. We didn't have time to get into a lot of this last time we were together, but let me read some of this. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, Paul carried the earnestness of his preaching as far as Spain, undergoing conflicts innumerable and performing signs and wonders. Chrysostom also wrote about Paul stating, for after he had been in Rome, he returned to Spain. There's also an interesting fragment of a papyrus manuscript discovered in Ambrosia Library in Italy back in 1700 by a guy named Domingo Muratori. The document was written in Latin. It seems to date around the year 140 A.D., judging from its content. Among the important references to the four Gospels, 
Paul's letter to the Romans and other documents, there appear five lines which end with the words, when Paul went to preach the gospel in Spain. And so that's a, there's some evidence uh, in the writings of the early church fathers or, uh, you know, certainly before the second century A.D., uh, it was widely held that Paul had made it to Spain. Now, why do we think Paul may have gotten as far as England? Well, George F. Jowett, in his book, The Drama of the Lost Disciples, records a statement by the Greek theologian, historian, and bishop of Cyrus, a guy named Theodoret. It's, he said, St. Paul brought salvation to the isles in the ocean, uh, meaning the British Isles. A more specific reference to Paul in Britain was made by Capellus in his History of the Apostles. He wrote, I know scarcely of one author from the time of the fathers downward who does not maintain that St. Paul, after his liberation, preached in every country of the West, in Europe, Britain included. R.W. Morgan cites the testimony of Greek theologian and historian Theodoratus in 435 A.D. as saying, Paul, liberated from his first captivity at Rome, preached the gospel to the Britons and others in the West. And so, uh, again, speculation uh, based on some historical references some years after the events. Paul was again arrested by the Roman authorities in 67 or 68 AD. He was returned to Rome for a second imprisonment. On what charges? Well, likely he was rounded up as a leader of Christians following the burning of Rome. That's the primary theory. Rumors spread that Nero was responsible and seeking opportunity to reshape the city as he wished, uh, he burned Rome. In order to divert suspicion from himself, he accused the Christians of the crime and initiated inquisition and outrageous persecution against Christians. Uh, and so it's most likely historians believe that Paul would have been uh, a target for arrest uh, during this period of time, uh, being a prominent church planter and leader of the Christian community. So he's imprisoned. His final imprisonment was rough. He said of himself, this is 2 Timothy 2.8, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Uh, the chains he referred to here were not the hallucis that we talked about last time of being chained to an elite Roman Praetorian guard in his own rented house and being able to move around freely. He was in prison being treated this time as an evildoer, as an individual who deserved punishment. And the prison was a dungeon realty. This is the Mamertine prison in Rome. According to tradition, the prison in which Paul was held, it was subterranean. It was located near the Forum and dated back to the 7th century before Christ to the reign of the fourth king of Rome, Ancus Martius. Before that was the site of a stone quarry. The prison itself was essentially two large rooms on different levels with iron shackles fixed to the walls. Any good pirate movie you've ever seen, uh, this, is, this is that prison. The lower chamber was the Tullian dungeon. Roman historian Salust, writing a century before Paul, said of this dungeon, it is sunk about 12 feet underground, walls secure it on every side, and over it is a vaulted roof connected with stone arches. 
but its appearance is disgusting and horrible by reason of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. Lighting was indeed poor, primarily coming from torches or oil lamps. The guards might have had fires to provide heat in the winter or to cook food. Guards were usually Roman soldiers, not elite Praetorian guard. Being a prison guard was not an appealing job and in Rome was often given to the poorest soldiers. Some of the guards were cruel and prisoners, particularly ones not Roman, were defenseless. Under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, the guard was executed. This tended to make guards extra cautious about their prisoners, to say the least. This is the story behind uh, the famous jailer in uh, Philippi who was going to kill himself after the uh, earthquake opened the jail cells because with the prisoners escaping, he would uh, certainly be punished. Uh, he, he would lose his life over that. Paul told him not to do himself any harm and shared the gospel with him. He and his family got saved. All the prisoners went back in their cells. Everything was hunky-dory, as we used to say. Uh, and so it's true that the guards, there's a pretty good incentive for not letting somebody escape or uh, get on your good side. Prisoners were manacled using different lengths of chain, probably reflecting their security risk, the nature of their accusation, and the attitude of the guards at the time. A short chain could hold a prisoner continually upright, dependent upon others for everything. A longer chain might permit a prisoner to take a step or two from the wall, sit down, or lie down. Some prisoners were placed in stocks, their ankles held apart. These persons were forced to sit on the same filthy spot continually. A few prisoners might have friends or paid guards to provide them clothing or blankets or food and waters. Uh, these persons would also change the bedding and straw and clean away their waste. Other prisoners had no such provision. Want to have some fun? Visit a prison in the third world. Uh, my first experience, or actually my only experience visiting prisons in the third world was in the Philippines. We went into prisons in uh, Bacolod City and Cebu City and different places, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's pretty eye-opening. Uh, first of all, you get in there, and it's just like this today where uh, your family feeds you. Uh, otherwise, there's very little ration in terms of, uh, it, it's, you know, it's worse than being on Survivor. I mean, you know, there's hardly anything that the government provides for the prisoners. And so family members come in or friends come in every day with food and clothing and those kinds of things. And certainly, as you understand, this hierarchy develops of people who uh, have a little bit more than others and things like that. And it's, it's, just, um, it's just terrible, really. And uh, obviously, first century Rome was a lot worse. And so those final days were very, very uncomfortable for Paul. We don't know how long he was in the Mamertine prison, but it was uh, a little while at least, and um, very, very difficult. Uh, we know he was chained, whether he was chained upright or chained uh, against the wall, whether he had any movement or not, we don't know, but he was in a bad way. Uh, and those final days were comparatively lonely. He wrote this. He said in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. And then in 2 Timothy 1.15, This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are 
uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. And so, uh, not too many people were visiting Paul, not too many people hanging in there with him. There were a few, as we'll see, uh, but he had some significant uh, uh, betrayals, really, from folks that he had been ministering with. Of his old companions, only Dr. Luke was with him. Uh, we know that from 2 Timothy 4.11. A few other names appear. Eubulius you, you, uh, greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. These are all uh, individuals that are new to the repertoire of Paul. And uh, so praise the Lord for them. But he didn't really have a cadre of old friends and acquaintances around him other than Luke. A, a verse in 2 Timothy, more than any other, I think, captures the feeling of those final days. 2 Timothy 4.13, he says, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, in the books, especially the parchments. Frank J. Goodwin, in his uh, compilation of the life of Paul, writes this. He says, a prisoner is being hurried from place to place by unsympathizing keepers, is little able to look after his property. But now the apostle is settled in prison, though his home is but a prison, and he feels that it will be his home for the remainder of his life. Winter is coming on, and winter in a Roman prison, as he knows by experience, is very cold. He wants to get back his rough traveling cloak. It was one of those large sleeveless garments which we might call an overall or a dreadnought. Perhaps St. Paul had woven it himself of the black goat's hair of his native province. And the books, especially the parchments, the Bible, or the Biblia, rather, the, pap the papyrus books, few, we may be sure, but old friends. And so Paul here at the end of his life, really, uh, without any of this world's goods, uh, he doesn't even have his coat with him because of perhaps the way he was arrested and treated. And he says, hey, I'd, I'd appreciate it if if you do come, if you'd bring my coat and a few books so I can study. It was during this time that he wrote the second epistle to Timothy and indicated his willingness for imminent departure from this mortal life. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, for I'm ready, I'm already, excuse me, being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then verse 8 Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but all those who have loved his appearing. The most accepted tradition puts his death by beheading as taking place along the Ostian Way outside of the city. As to the beheading itself, A.T. Robertson writes, the details are all wanting. Tradition supplies only a few, which may or may not be true. The story is that Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Road. It was customary for criminals of prominence to be executed several miles out of the city so as to avoid possible crowds. We may picture the event in a possible manner. One day in late spring or early June, the executioners came to Paul's dungeon and led him out of the city. Paul, as a condemned criminal, would be the victim of rabble uh, and sport. He would have no defender. We don't know if Luke was with Paul to the very last. We may at least hope so. If he could, he would surely walk along as near as Paul as would be allowed. But no band of Christians followed with him now. He was going out of Rome on his way to the true eternal city. He knew Rome well, but his eyes were fixed on other things. Outside the city, the busy, merry life of the time went on. The crowds flowed into town. Some were going out. 
Paul was only a criminal going to be beheaded. Few, if any, of the crowds about would know or care anything about him. At a good place on the road, some miles out, the executioner stopped. The block was laid down. Paul laid his head upon it. The sword or axe was raised, and the head of the greatest preacher of the ages rolled upon the ground. Tradition says that a Roman matron named Lucina buried the body of St. Paul on her own land beside the Ostian Road. Be that as it may, no Christian can come to Rome, especially by that road, without tender thoughts of Paul, the matchless servant of Jesus Christ. Paul would have been about 66 years old at the time of his beheading. Rather than come to our own conclusions or make our own comments about Paul, let him speak for himself as his life comes to an end. He says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. A couple of thoughts as we wind down here, uh, the life of Paul. Like you, uh, I kind of have an innate understanding uh, or, well, not an understanding. I have an innate desire, hope, dream, assumption that life gets easier as you get older. And then you get older and you find out life isn't any easier, many times very hard. And uh, I look at these Bible characters, faithful, faithful men. Paul the Apostle, faithful to preach the gospel, laying his life down. And, and the, the hard facts are uh, the last months and days of his life were very difficult, very difficult physically and emotionally. Uh, and uh, yet the Lord sustained him. And so, um, you know, we all want to enjoy the spoil at the end uh, of, of the game, as it were, uh, but, uh, you know, we were just in Hebrews this morning, Gino's teaching in Hebrews 11, and, you know, there, there's those that subdued kingdoms and stopped the mouths of lions, and there's those who had their heads cut off and were sawn in two and lived in caves and, uh, you know, went around, uh, hunted down and persecuted. And so uh, I know I'm not giving you uh, anything to be too excited about except the real world out there, and, and that is that uh, we suffer now to reign later. And then Paul says, I'm uh, persuaded he'll, he'll keep what I've committed to him until that day. He, he just called it that day without anything further to designate it because it is the great day. It's the day for which all other days are made. Seems to have been so much the object of thought and conversation among the early Christians that the apostles supposed that he would be understood immediately by merely referring to it as that day, the day in which they were preaching about and talking about and thinking about. And so uh, these, Paul could just say, well, I, you know, I've, I can't wait until that day. It's the day that you see Jesus Christ face to face. It's the day that all sorrow ceases, that all suffering either makes sense or is understood. I don't know which it's going to be, maybe a combination of both. Uh, you know, this side of heaven, we all have questions. Why does... Why is James beheaded? Why is Peter set free? Uh, It's a, uh, you know, obviously we put in the names of people we know in situations that we've dealt with uh, when we ask those questions. Why does this person have this path of life and this person has another? Uh, And we hope to get answers to those questions. I personally don't think 
Not that we won't care, but either all suffering will suddenly make sense when we see the Lord or it'll just be understood. It's the day that any sacrifice that you've made seems so minor compared to the glory of knowing him who loved you and died for you. Uh, All of us, I mean, be honest, we all sometimes think, you know, we're just making huge sacrifices as Christians. And, uh, you know, it's just so difficult. And in some cases, that's true. There's nothing to take away from that. Uh, We are sacrificing. Uh, But in that day, all of that, don't you know, will seem minor when you see Jesus Christ and you see, just look into his eyes. I know people talk about seeing the scars and, and, you know, the, the marks that he bears in his body on our behalf, but uh, I, just think, I just think you'll look into his eyes. Uh, I don't think you have to see scars or understand suffering uh, like that. It's what I really, I'm off on a tangent now, but it's what I had against the passion of the Christ when that movie first came out. That was going to be the big thing. Every, everybody in the world was going to get saved because they were going to see the suffering of Jesus Christ. And uh, essentially, every Christian in the world went to that movie. Uh, and I'm glad that some people did get saved, but uh, it, it wasn't any big thing. It was a big thing in Hollywood, but it wasn't any big thing for the gospel. Because you don't want to, you don't want to look at the scars of Jesus Christ. You want to look at the eyes of Jesus Christ and see the love that he has for you. It's his... Uh, love that draws you. He had to die on the cross, and, and it's real. His suffering was real and intense, no doubt about it. But even the gospel writers are very, very um, careful about talking about his suffering on the cross. And uh, I think uh, we, we'll just look into his eyes and we'll see that he loved us. Like uh, Pete Briscoe was talking about on the video tonight, that, that how can I be first when when there is such a a person as Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that there's that day. Right now I'm I'm held in chains. Maybe I can't even sit down. My body is aching. Maybe I'm in the stocks. I haven't eaten for a while. Demas has forsaken me. These other guys have forsaken me. Timothy, you're you're probably not going to get here on time with my jacket. Uh, I don't have anything to read. I'm scratching out on some papyrus and, you know, I'm sitting in my own filth. You know, I... Whoever thought it would end like this, but it hasn't ended because I'm looking forward to that day, and that's all I think about, and that's all that matters. The day that Paul, who wrote to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, would be absent from his body and present with his Lord. And so here at the end of our studies about the life of Paul, I can only hope that we all hold that day to be the preeminent day of our lives as well looking for it, longing for it, and living for it. Uh, Because whatever happens in this life, it's only a prelude to uh, the life that the Lord has for us in eternity. It's only preparatory, and whatever we have, we can commit to him, and he is faithful to keep it. Amen.